I'm Michael Klein, Executive Editor of Econofact, a nonpartisan web-based publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. At Econofact, we bring key facts and incisive analysis to the national debate on economic and social policies, publishing work from leading economists across the country. You can learn more about us and see our work at www.econofact.org. The economy surprised everyone last year with falling inflation, low unemployment, and solid economic growth. One would think that this means that people are happy with the way things are going, but that doesn't seem to be the case. Economists may not be as well-placed to understand this disconnect as journalists reporting on the economy. It's a great privilege and pleasure for me to welcome once more a panel of very distinguished economic journalists to Econofact Chats to discuss the performance of the economy over the last year and people's perceptions of that. I welcome back Benjamin Applebaum of the New York Times, Scott Horsley of NPR, Greg Ip of the Wall Street Journal, and Heather Long of the Washington Post. We last spoke in October. Heather, Greg, Scott, and Benjamin, welcome once more to Econofact Chats. Great to be here to be with you. Thank you. Greg, my comments in the introduction about the surprising performance of the economy in 2023 directly is quoting a recent article that you wrote. In that article, you attribute this good performance to improvements in the supply side of the economy, but you also note that this supply-based curative has its limits. Can you explain that? Sure. Well, let's first of all answer the que- look at the question about why we think last year was surprising. We think it was surprising because on the one hand, you had the unemployment rate staying very low, below 4%, you know, longest period below 4% since the 1960s. Uh, you also had uh, economic growth surprising most economists. I think it's going to come in at around 2.6% for the year. Uh, by comparison, we think of the long rate, long-term growth rate of the U.S. as 1.8%. So doing much better, not just better than expectations, but better than what you would expect over the long term. And yet at the same time, inflation fell. It fell faster than most people had expected. You don't normally expect to have better than expected growth, very low unemployment, and falling inflation. Well, the way you explain this unusual set of facts is that historically, most of the time, uh, the economy is driven by demand. You get a lot of demand and inflation tends to rise. Too little demand and you get a recession. The last few years, it's all been about supply. First of all, we had a pandemic that shut down a lot of the economy. And when the economy reopened, you had essentially scrambled supply chains. You had rearranged patterns of demand, people living in different places. And most of the economy just could not keep up with supplying the goods and services that people asked for. So you got very high uh, prices as a result. The last year or two has been all about the supply side of the economy adjusting to these uh, differences and finally being able to like generate the goods and services that people want. I'd like to say that people think that prices are high because companies are trying to maximize their profits. I'd like to say that prices are falling because companies like to maximize their profits. By which I mean, if you're an airline and there are unmet demands for flights, you want to put out more flights and hire more people to fly on those airplanes. If you build apartments and there is unmet demand for housing, you want to build more apartments. And that's exactly what happened in the last year. American businesses did what American businesses do, which is they said, hey, there's high prices, there's strong demand, I'm going to go out there and get some of that. And that's exactly what happened. And if you understand that this is mostly a story about supply, 
last year isn't really that surprising at all. Scott? I think the reason that so many people anticipated we would uh, have a, a weaker economy last year was because we did have the Federal Reserve aggressively raising interest rates to try to tamp down inflation. Those higher interest rates are designed to work against the demand side of the economy. Uh, they did put a damper on some things. You know, they, they certainly uh, depressed the housing market to an extent. Uh, you do see maybe some uh, reduction in demand for big ticket items that people tend to finance. Uh, but as, as Greg points out, a lot of the improvement on uh, the inflation front has come from the supply side rather than from depressed demand, which is what we usually expect to, to tip us into recession. I will say, um, even though people are grumpy despite these strong economic indicators, there are some signs that public sentiment is starting to turn around a little bit. Uh, the last couple of months, uh, the University of Michigan consumer sentiment figures have, have shown a big improvement. Uh, in fact, the biggest improvement in, in three decades. Uh, it, public sentiment is still not great. People aren't singing happy days are here again. They, they still are unhappy with, with elevated prices. But we are starting to see people recognize the improvement on the inflation front and feel a little bit better. When they were singing happy days were, are here again, originally that was back in the depths of the Depression. <laughs> so I'm glad we're not there. Benjamin? Yeah, I guess I, I would frame this uh, a little bit differently, because I think if you go back a year ago and you asked economists what they expected to happen this year, uh, the story most of them told was that the Federal Reserve was going to squeeze the economy sufficiently to push it into at least a mild recession. That was what the Fed expected to happen. It was what many outside observers expected to happen. Uh, and the Fed did squeeze and demand remained surprisingly resilient. And as Greg has noted, supply uh, expanded uh, pretty sharply uh, in a number of areas to, to accommodate that demand and to meet it. And the economy kept growing as a consequence. Uh, was that surprising? Well, it seems to have taken most observers by surprise. I, I think we all know economists who got this right and predicted it, but they were not in the majority. Uh, and to me, it raises uh, some interesting questions, in particular about monetary policy and and its role in the economy uh, and its power over the economy uh, and the degree to which the Fed was able to anticipate uh, what was going to happen. Because, you know, if you look back a year ago, it, it looks like they, they once again got surprised, this time in a way that was good for us, but surprised. Heather, you wrote an article in which you said that the performance of the economy last year was not just surprising, but in your words, a miracle. You also note that while the U.S. soared, other countries' economies' performances were mediocre. Economists tend not to believe in miracles. So what happened in the U.S. and why was it different from what happened elsewhere? Yeah, thanks. I was going to say that while most of us on this um, podcast focus on the U.S. economy, that I think this is one time that we really have to look globally as well. And, you know, the entire world faced a pandemic, the entire world faced a supply um, crisis, and the entire world pretty much saw inflation come down a lot last year. But what really sets the United States apart is, is that demand side that Binyam was talking about, which remained really strong, uh, despite all these various headwinds and many parts of the world saw their central banks rise and in, raise interest rates. Um, you know, and I think what really, as I tried to look at this and look through the data, you know, what's just really stands out about the United States is 
um, consumption in many ways looks better than it did, stronger than it did um, pre-pandemic, which is a surprise. And some of that you can attribute, of course, to our government fiscal policy, which was very, very generous compared to most other nations. But the other big surprise, and I have to give some credit to the JP Morgan economists for figuring this one out, um, was really the wealth surge. Um, you know, the way that our housing market works is very unique. Most people saw a huge uh, jump in their uh, housing values and their stock market values. Um, and, you know, that really also insulated them because we do the 30 year mortgage rate and other countries don't lock in for 30 years. It really insulated the vast majority of Americans from, you know, one of the biggest ramifications of the Fed hiking interest rates. And so all of this sort of came together and also the labor supply, you know, Greg talked a lot about supply issues, but I think the other big surprise was labor supply it turned out to be a lot bigger than, than a lot of people anticipated, particularly women with children coming back into the labor market a lot, a lot faster and stronger than a lot of people initially thought. And so you put all that together, people had more money, people felt wealthier and people continued to spend um, at rates that certainly very few people were forecasting, even if they were forecasting and, um, that inflation would come down and we weren't going to end up in a recession. A lot of people did not forecast Q3 GDP you know, shooting through the roof, for example. So that, I think, is um, a helpful international context as we look at sort of why, why did the U.S. stand out so much last year. As someone whose research was in international macroeconomics, I really appreciate that perspective. Um, and yet, you know, as Scott said, people are grumpy. Benjamin, you co-authored an article with your colleague Peter Coy around Thanksgiving that people were not giving thanks. In fact, they were, as you also said, grumpy, although it does seem like this so-called vibe session might be easing right now. What do you think is going on? What was going on then and what do you think is going on now? So I guess the first thing that I'd say is that, uh, you know, a leading theory of, of what was going on, one school of thought was that there's just a significant lag between conditions and sentiment. Uh, and the more recent readings of the sentiment index uh, give a lot of credence to that. It, it appears to be the case that uh, sentiment is, is rebounding quite strongly as people sort of, I guess, take stock of uh, their financial lives and their economic prospects. Uh, the point that I made in that piece, uh, which I think uh, remains true, is that uh, when people are asked about present conditions, their eyes are often on the future. They often answer those questions, not just in terms of how they're doing today, but about their expectations for how they will be doing going forward. Uh, and I think, you know, when I've when I've talked to people around the country about their economic situations, what one often heard uh, over the last year was a lot of uncertainty uh, and a lot of uh, lack of confidence about where things were headed. So yeah, things might be good right now, but uh, where are we going? Do I feel like I'm going to be able to sustain the income growth that I've seen? Do I think I'm going to be able to afford a house? Do I think I'm going to be able to put my kids through college? Uh, and a lot of Americans have a lot of uncertainty about those things or outright skepticism about those things. And I think that that has tended to weigh on consumer sentiment uh, quite a bit. Uh, but I think the, the bigger story, uh, which we have to take cognizance of now, as Scott noted, is that we are now seeing uh, a rebound that that appears to make consumer sentiment look more like the macroeconomic data. Scott, you had some reports, um, some broadcasts on views of the economy and also on the link between how high gas prices are and people's views of inflation. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, traditionally, the price of gasoline weighs heavily on people's sentiment. You can you can often 
plot the two together and there's a very strong correlation. Uh, and as gas prices have around the country fallen close to $3 a gallon and, and actually stayed in that range, even with all the turmoil in the Middle East, uh, I think people have, have definitely felt more confident. The other thing is that the stock market affects people's sentiment. Even even though a lot of people don't have a lot of wealth tied up in the stock market, they they see the coverage every day, a rising market. It, you know, it's, it's not the economy, but it does affect people's sentiment. And so the combination of falling gas prices and a uh, you know, Dow and S&P in, in record territory, I think, has, has made people feel a little bit better. Yeah, there aren't many prices that are um, every day you can see in three foot high letters as you're driving. So, it, you know, it is a striking thing. Heather? And it's and it's one area, you know, we've, we've had a, sort of throughout the economy this disinflation where prices are no longer going up as fast as they had been. And that's what the Fed looks for. That's what a lot of economists look for. But what consumers look for is or what consumers want is to see prices actually come down. And gasoline is, is one of the commodities, one of the noticeable commodities where that's actually happened. We've, ne- we've now seen gas prices fall from a high of near five dollars back in uh, uh, the summer of 2022. Uh, and that, by the way, is when consumer sentiment hit an all time low. Uh, we've now seen gasoline prices fall, you know, by close to two dollars a gallon. So I'll jump in here. I wrote a column with the headline, the vibe session is likely over in July. So I guess I was about six months earlier than our friends at the New York Times. But I, <laughs> but, uh, you know, so I appreciate Binya's point that some of it just took time to work through. I still think a lot of the story can be explained by real wages. And that really started to change last spring and summer where you where we finally, yes, people have had trouble digesting a 20% across the board price increase compared to pre-pandemic. But we're now in a situation where for all workers, wages um, are up 20%. And for production and non-supervisory workers, um, you know, our middle class, if you will, uh, wages are up 23% since that same point in the pre-pandemic. So people are, in fact, starting to really feel and see that they are better off. And it did took, take a long time to get there. It takes you know several months, if not a year, for people to really feel that in a tangible way, um, in addition to all the factors that Scott was saying. So I think there's a lot of, you know, a lot of reason to be hopeful if, if you're the Biden team and you're heading into a, a situation where the next couple of months should continue to see uh, real wages uh, continue to significantly outpace where we are with the costs. Before we leave this topic, I'd like to mention that Aaron Sojourner and Ben Harris have a Brookings blog out where they look not at consumer sentiment, but what they call news sentiment, the way things are reported. And they do this econometric analysis of news sentiment as a function of underlying economic conditions. And then what's interesting is they look at the deviations from the prediction. And what they found was that the deviations from the prediction were biggest in the 2001 to, uh, 2021 to 2023 period when the news was more dire or more pessimistic than the underlying conditions. So as people in that industry, do you have any views about that, Greg? May I, on behalf of the reporters on this call, explain why it's not the fault of the reporters that people are in such a lousy mood? So first of all, it's a very well done study, but all they've actually shown is that there's a correlation between sentiment and economic news, not that economic news is causing people's sentiment to be low. Uh, in my judgment, essentially what the news sentiment and what people's uh, more broadly reflected sentiment are both showing 
is the same thing, which is that everybody feels lousy. And journalists are not immune to that either. Uh, speaking for myself, I'd be curious if my colleagues uh, have noticed the same thing. We notice that particular types of stories arouse much more reaction from people. They really were responding to stories about inflation for the last year or two, much more so than to stories about low unemployment. That tells us something, right? So it's not that the news media are out there with their own agenda saying, here, people, read about all these terrible things. Don't believe your own lying eyes. It's, it's not like that. In some sense, the media are themselves part of the overall atmosphere. And I do want to make a couple of sort of related points to this. Just how bad sentiment is depends partly on how you measure it. Most people look at the University of Michigan sentiment index, but this index, the way it's constructed, is very sensitive to inflation and financial assets. If you look at the conference board's index, which is uh, almost as old, but not as closely followed, it's much more sensitive to the job market. And that index never did fall as much. And then you have a whole variety of other sort of uh, less pure indexes. When you go out and ask people, for example, is the country on the right uh, track or going in the wrong direction? That is, in some sense, an indirect way of showing, uh, asking that same question. And what we've seen is that it looks like a lot of what we think is people being down on the economy is just people being down on the country in general. And I often you know, refer to 1967, 68, when the economy was doing great, but the, the whole country was in flames. And it was reflected in political sentiment and, uh, you know, the results of the 1968 election. Well, I'm, I'm sorry that the journalists on this call are feeling badly. And I promise next time I'm in D.C., I'll take you all out for a drink. Benjamin? I'd, I'd just add two things to what Greg said, uh, which I largely agree with. Uh, the first is that uh, I think that this was a confusing year. Uh, a lot of experts didn't understand what was happening and persisted in uh, a more negative outlook than proved to be warranted. Uh, journalists rely on those people or at least take them seriously. And I think there was a real lag in willingness to accept or to reflect that the economy was improving in part because a lot of very smart people weren't sure that it was true. Um, so that's one thing that I'd say. Uh, the other is that to the extent that journalists are uh, only human and and are to some extent, you know, reflecting the vibes that they themselves are feeling. Uh, this has been a really lousy time economically for journalists. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of people who are writing these stories were themselves struggling or uncertain about their economic futures. And uh, I guess I would put it, I find it hard to believe that that doesn't on some level influence the tone of coverage. Fair enough. Um, as a tenured professor who's sort of assured of a job, I guess I'm more optimistic than a lot of other people, perhaps for that reason. But in terms of optimism, Greg, you have a recent article about technological advances in which you say the future is bright, but you just need to know where to look. So where in fact should you look to see this bright future? Well, I'm glad you brought up that column, uh, Michael, because in some sense I wrote that column uh, as a reaction to the pervasive gloom by sort of going to first principles and asking, well, what is it that makes for human thriving over the very long run? And on that front, last year, the last couple of years have actually been kind of exciting. Um, chat GPT and artificial intelligence. I mean, we've been hearing about AI for decades, but I think in the last year is the year it finally hit home to people, hey, this is an amazingly powerful tool that can do a lot of things and could actually have a material effect, effect on well-being and economic growth in the long run. In the short run, people are worried about losing our jobs to AI. I certainly know that I, as a journalist, I'm a little bit, you know, um, 
uh, disturbed by how good some of the answers are you can get from ChatGPT. But <clears throat> trying to sort of step out of that sort of parochial point of view, I think that most innovations of this sort have been net positive for uh, people's well-being in the long run. I don't see why this would be different. I'm even more thrilled when I look at some of the things that happen in life sciences. Like at last year, we got the first, the FDA approved the first effective treatment for Alzheimer's. Uh, this is like one of the last diseases that has defeated all attempts to understand and cure. And that is just an enormous uh, step forward. And of course, all the excitement about weight loss drugs. You know, uh, Alzheimer's and obesity, and by the way, some of these weight loss drugs have found that they can actually address a variety of forms of addiction and substance abuse. So you think of those um, problems, Alzheimer's, obesity, substance abuse are three of the most pervasive health challenges that we face as a society. So what all these advances I'm talking about have in common, it's not just that they represent the frontier of science moving outwards because that happens every year. It's that the benefits are so widespread. These are not rare diseases. These are not isolated sorts of problems these technologies and breakthroughs are addressing. And I think that um, setting aside all the reasons people can have to feel negative, those are incredibly positive developments for the future. I would also mention, although it's not as widespread, the development that Vertex had um, in, in addressing sickle cell anemia, which is just was incredibly heartening to see that. A friend of mine is a chief scientific officer for Vertex, and I learned about this from him before the hearings, and it's just really dramatic that we have this change. Scott? Yeah, well, as someone who uh, once lost a uh, news writing contest to a robot, I can certainly testify to the challenges posed by AI, but it, it does it does offer lots of advantages. And, and another thing to be, I think, uh, sanguine about is, is the really strong boost that we've seen in productivity, worker productivity uh, in the last year. Some of that has to do with, with technological improvement, but some of it may also have to do with uh, all the job churn that we've seen uh, during the, you know, the great shuffle, the great, uh, the great quitting and, and then getting rehired uh, in, in 2022. Uh, there, there was a lot of uh, friction in the job market associated with that, but ultimately maybe people wound up in, in better jobs, jobs for which they're better suited. And as they get longer tenure and as we see that churn slow down, productivity has, has really taken off. And that's good because productivity, allow, higher when workers are more productive, they can earn more money without putting upward pressure on prices. Yeah, I also find myself uh, modestly more optimistic, too, for the tech reasons Greg laid out, for the worker reasons, so many people getting into jobs they like better that Scott laid out. There's also been a surge in government investment. I'll give a nod to Binya, had a great column on that recently, so I'll let him talk more about that. And I would layer on top of that, this is more of a question mark, but we did have a bit of a shakeup in terms of people moving, particularly millennials moving. Millennials with a lot of money and college degrees were the most likely to, to move permanently during the pandemic. And I think we don't, you know, we always have had this in approach for much of the past century of believing that everybody just needed to move to the big cities, that the more people sort of bigger is better philosophy. And, you know, what we've actually seen in the last couple of years is the rise of, I don't know what to call them, in, in real estate, they call them second tier or third tier cities, but they're really like rising star cities. We, we just have our talent and our dollars dispersed in a lot more places now across America. And, you know, there, there could be some potential for real innovation hubs to happen outside of New York, San Francisco, maybe Boston, LA, DC, that, that was happening before. And 
in my eyes, all of that comes together to some really dynamic um, future for the U.S. And you mean, I was also struck by that article that you wrote that Heather referenced. Um, you, in that article, wrote that President Biden's efforts to reinvigorate the government's role as an investor in the economy could be, and the quote is, may endure as a turning point in the nation's political and economic history. Could you explain that a bit, please? Absolutely, yeah. But before I do, I, I just want to say one thing about what Heather just said, which is that to me, the trend of people moving out of large cities to smaller ones uh, is one of the most negative and unsettling long-term trends in the American economy. We have wonderful economic evidence that the concentration of talent geographically is a huge catalyst of creativity and productivity growth over time. Uh, and the reason people are leaving these cities is because they can't afford to live there. And so we've stood on its head the old model of the places that are strongest economically being the places that also see the largest population growth. Uh, and instead of making it possible for people to live in generative places like San Francisco and New York and Seattle, we're shipping them out to second rate cities where they'll be isolated from innovation and capital. Uh, I'm not at all convinced that it's a good thing for this country. Um, that said, uh, why do I think that the Biden administration's emphasis on investment is so important? I think, you know, a lot of the stuff we talk about when we talk about the economy is is fairly uh, short term fluctuations around fairly steady concepts of how the economy should work. And every so often uh, we get a real change in those conceptions. And what the Biden administration is pushing is that kind of change. We've been through several decades in which the government really withdrew from its role as uh, an investor in the economy, from uh, investment in infrastructure, from investment in research, uh, from supporting domestic industry, uh, and sort of said, basically, this is not our role. We're, we're not going to do this, uh, or we're going to do it more minimally than we have in the past. Uh, and I think we've been living with the consequences of that. Uh, and we are now seeing uh, a really strong shift, at least ideologically, in the approach to that, uh, first under Trump and now under Biden, where the government is reengaging that role. I think the consequences are enormously complicated, uh, both economically and politically, and we're still unpacking them and seeing how it will all work out. But this is a big deal. Something very big and important is happening, and it should have all of our attention. Uh, this idea that the government is going to renew its role as a more active participant in the economy and in economic development. Uh, and that's why I described it as a potential turning point. I just put in a pitch here for your book from a few years ago, The Economist Hour, where you really outline in a very nice way sort of the evolution of thinking and maybe you need to have a uh, an addenda to the last chapter of that book now and if you do i'll buy another copy um while things are looking up in terms of the u.s economy and heather already mentioned that other countries aren't doing as well but some other developments are even much more concerning there's conflict in the middle east the attacks on shipping these could have big economic ramifications since it could cause another supply side shock. How do you think these events and other military conflicts will impact the U.S. economy? I know, Scott, you talked about that a little bit in one of your segments. Yeah, we, we have certainly seen uh, an uptick in the cost of shipping uh, goods by water uh, because of the, the trouble both in the, the Red Sea and Suez Canal and also the, the uh, drought-related problems in the Panama Canal. These are less of a concern for the United States than they are for Europe, because most of the stuff that comes to the United States uh, 
from Asia comes via the Pacific, so it doesn't need to go through the Red Sea and Suez Canal. Uh, but obviously, uh, the, the stuff that goes to Europe, the, some of it eventually winds up in the U.S. And we're talking about inputs, and it, it, it can have it can have global ramifications. Um, it's it's not nearly uh, as dramatic as the uptick in shipping costs that we saw during the the uh, early period of the pandemic. Um, so it's 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 not on the same sort of scale, but it's it's not not something you want to see. And uh, it does seem as if the uh, the Houthi attacks on shipping in the Red Sea are are not going to be easily quashed by, by U.S. military action or, or other allies' military action. Ben, you mean? I'll just add, you know, sort of uh, a longer term point, which is that uh, the share of the economy that goes toward national defense spending has been in steady decline for decades now. Uh, and one possible ramification of a world in which there is more conflict and more threats to the United States uh, is that we need to start spending more on defense again. Uh, that has uh, interesting economic consequences. It, it has in the past been an engine of national investment in infrastructure and research, uh, as we just talked about. It's been a reason for doing those things that people are capable of rallying behind. But it also means that resources are being diverted from other potentially productive uses. Um, and I think, you know, one sort of interesting thing to watch is whether the United States decides that the gap between its commitments and its capabilities has grown too wide and that we need to begin reinvesting in national defense on a large scale. It is also just interesting to see, uh, you know, the world's most powerful military um, sort of not necessarily able to deal with a ragtag group of rebels who are bent on attacking a critical shipping corridor. I mean, it, it, it certainly seems like the kind of thing that the international community wants to uh, wants to defend is, is free shipping lanes. And yet all the money that all the military spend uh, are sort of humbled by by the Houthi rebels. I was uh, I was in uh, Davos uh, just recently for the World Economic Forum. Um, it's not as fun as it sounds. <laughs> However, you do end up speaking yeah, to a lot of. Like um, it's pretty fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, some appearances are deceptive, um, and certainly one of the impressions you get from talking to a lot of uh, economic and business leaders there is that the sorts of things that they used to think about most in terms of what will how will this affect my business in the coming year? Interest rates, inflation, recession, commodities. Those are those are now in some sense subordinated to geopolitics. Will there be a war going on? Will there be a you know uh, export bans or other tariffs or other conflict between China and Western nations and so forth? And what's going on in the Red Sea is I think you know it came along exactly as these folks were meeting and it drives that home. You know I mean in our conversations geopolitics was one of the first things that came up. And I think it has a couple of implications, you know, like I think Vinny was saying, I, I, that it certainly tests the ability of the United States to be the world's policeman. Our defense industrial base is woefully unprepared for fulfilling these duties. And our allies, you know, aren't much better. And um, I, I don't see it getting better before it gets worse. And I think it's one of the reasons why one wants to be very kind of like cautious about declaring the war the you know the war on inflation having been won because the what all these supply interruptions have in common is the ability to uh, very suddenly raise costs and i think it's one of the things that businesses and economists will have to get used to for the long run i heard jamie diamond say recently that his biggest economic risks aren't economic they're political which is sort of a nice pithy way of summarizing what greg was talking about well as always, I really enjoy 
these discussions that we have four times a year and your insights are really valuable and enlightening. So thank you once again for joining me on this podcast and, um, and you know, I hope for all of our sakes, the supply shocks don't emerge. Certainly not in newsprint. <laughs> that would be nice. <laughs> <laughs> this has been Econofact Chats. To learn more about Econofact and to see the work on our site, you can log into www.econofact.org. Econofact is a publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Thanks for listening.